This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. This week, panic and the Pentagon. Michael Hastings of BuzzFeed and Rolling Stone is here. He's now out with Panic 2012, his ebook chronicling the closing stanza of Barack Obama's defeat of Mitt Romney and his own return to a beat he learned to dread four years before the presidential campaign. We'll ask Michael what's worse, using porta potties in all 50 states or eating catered breakfast burritos seven days a week. They may be related. Then, to quote Matt Lauer on a more serious note, where in the world is Leon Panetta? Pentagon Press Secretary George Little is here, an expert in counterterrorism. He's been with a sec def since the beginning of Panetta's CIA days, through the killing of Osama bin Laden, right to this week, as a line of public service bids bon voyage to Washington and the world before returning to Sylvia and the Walnut Farm in Monterey. First, with a farewell tour of Europe, and now with his parting historical act, lifting the ban on women serving in combat. But first, I'm joined from Washington by my co-host, Adam Belmar, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Adam, of course, was production chief in the George W. Bush administration, the same role I played in the Clinton White House. Adam, it's great to be with you. It is good to be back with you, sir. Inaugural week, uh, Women in Combat week, Hillary on the Hill week. Uh, Let's start at the beginning. What did you think of the inaugural? I think it's a great day for the United States of America. I mean, if you love polyoptics, if you are a patriot, then this is such a special day, uh, regardless of of who the commander-in-chief who's being sworn in actually is. Uh, In this case, obviously, you know, Barack Obama, very historic seeing uh, the first African-American president sworn in for a second term in office. But uh, it was uh, was just a beautiful day in Washington. The temperature was a little warmer than than we remember for a lot of other inaugurals. and the, the Capitol just looked in great uh, repair. The, 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 the set we talked about last week uh, stood up, lived up to its, uh, its, its billing. And I think the people who were there uh, had a great experience, just like we did at home on television. Let's hear a little bit of the president uh, on Inauguration Day. We, the people, declare today that the most evident of truths, that all of us are created equal, is the star that guides us still. Just as it guided our forebears through Seneca Falls and Selma and Stonewall, just as it guided all those men and women, sung and unsung, who left footprints along this great mall, to hear a preacher say that we cannot walk alone, to hear a king proclaim that our individual freedom is inextricably bound to the freedom of every soul on earth. It is now our generation's task to carry on what those pioneers began. Seneca Falls, Stonewall, and Selma, Adam. Great alliteration with some pretty good rhetoric in that speech. The one thing that I picked up, having talked with Max Schindler last week with you and me, is uh, I don't know exactly know 
who was deciding exactly where that head-on pool camera went because you saw the president, you saw the Schindler blue, you saw a little bit of red on either side of the carpet, and then you saw Jerry Nadler's head poking out with his inaugural program. <laughs> Doesn't that just annoy the hell out of you? You know, it's one of those things that you look at with a critical eye. A lot of people probably didn't even notice, um, but it'll it'll fester like a, like a wound that wants to be picked forever. You know, that Jerry Nadler's head was just popping out in this shot and it wasn't really head-on. And I agree with you. You know, one of the things that I thought was, and I I'd really, <clears throat> I know a lot has been made about the president's speech from a policy uh, and in a rhetorical uh, perspective. But one of the things that I uh, cherish the most about Inauguration Day was uh, the history of it. Um, and, and from a real average citizen's perspective, there was a, an article in the Washington Post about the uh, soon-to-be uh, stood up African American Museum and how the curators for this museum were out uh, picking up real time pieces of history and something that they had found in 2008 this uh, bedsheet that somebody had painted on the words uh, Rosa sat so Martin could march and you know Martin marched so Obama could run and Obama's running so our kids can fly. And there's such a sense in the African-American community and hopefully throughout the rest of the country that, you know, the opportunities uh, in the United States are better than anywhere else and that, you know, you can imagine and potentially see yourself raising your hand in front of the chief justice someday if that's what you want to do in your life here. Yes, and one opportunity that came, Adam, was for Beyonce to sing the national anthem. Uh, and if there was, if there is any residual issue that comes to us at the end of the week from this inaugural week, is is the media's continued fascination with whether or not our national anthem was sung live or via Memorex. Let's hear a little bit from Beyonce. That was an excellent rendition by one person lip-syncing, but what was much more remarkable to me, Adam, it's one person can lip-sync, but what about the entire Marine band, the president's own, you know, blow-syncing into their trumpets? They weren't even playing. (laughs) I know it's so remarkable that uh, that uh, that the the band was forced into this position. I mean, can I be honest with you? Yes, this go. is the uh, the kinds of real world ethical dilemmas that no one ever prepares you for in college. And these are United States uniformed military officers, and here they are being told right before they're about to go that no, no, you really can't play because we can't be out of sync with the recording. So you have to pretend to play. I mean, it's go time. You're operational. You you have to go along to get along. And um, I don't fault anyone. I, I, I you know I'm a little tongue in cheek when I say this, Josh. But if Barack Obama can use the auto pen to 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 pass uh, or sign into law a piece of critical fiscal legislation uh, on New Year's Day, then you know what, Beyonce can can lip sync. I think yeah, we're fine not there. A, not a big problem. I mean, it it did remind me of. Uh, 
the great uh, 1977 film Capricorn One, when uh, Hal Holbrook tells James Brolin, O.J. Simpson, and Sam Waterston as they jet away from Cape Canaveral with their aborted Mars mission uh, behind them that uh, they discovered two weeks ago that it wouldn't work. And so they had to fake the entire uh, moon landing in some remote sound studio in the Arizona desert, and then Waterston and O.J. meet their doom and... But there comes James Brolin at the end with uh, Elliot Gould to show that. Well, uh, I, I it think also a from a from an optics perspective, Josh, this week in Washington has been a little surreal um, because we had this comedy around the uh, the inaugural. It, it lasted precisely twenty four hours until the Secretary of State finally showed on Capitol Hill to. Uh, talk Benghazi on the Senate in the House side. It gave way to a little bit of theatrics. And then a day later, you had the uh, next go around, the, the the Senator John Kerry, who was getting his confirmation hearings. I mean, there is a ton of politics that uh, will not be stopped. It's like a dam. You can't build it high enough. It will always spill over. So, you remember, Adam, when Robert Gates made his farewell tour as defense secretary back in t- 2011, we welcomed his press secretary, Jeff Morrell, on the program. Now, Gates' successor, Leon Panetta, my old chief of staff when I worked at the White House, has made his final trip as defense secretary, and we're honored to have George Little to offer a recap of the final days. Final days marked not just by that trip to the UK, Italy, Spain, and Portugal, but also the surprise announcement this week that the Pentagon would lift the ban on women in combat. George Little joined the CIA as chief of media relations in 2007 and came to DOD with Secretary Panetta in 2011. He joins us from our studios in Washington. Welcome, George. Thank you very much. It's terrific to be here. Uh, A lot going on this week. What is going on? This sort of hit us uh, sort of from the broadside yesterday. Well, uh, the uh, Women in Combat uh, announcement uh, is a major deal. It's a landmark announcement. It's a historic moment for the U.S. military and for our nation. This is an issue that's been hotly debated for a very long time. And Secretary Panetta, working with the Joint Chiefs of Staff over the past year, have looked at the role of women in combat, and they together came to the conclusion that it was the right time to rescind the direct ground combat exclusion rule. This opens up nearly a quarter million positions in theory to women over time. Now the services are going to take a look at this, assess different occupations and specialties, and see how we can incorporate more and more women into the military. Can you give us a TikTok of the last few months specifically on this issue before we get to Europe and, and Secretary Panetta's legacy? And also, you know, Adam and I both come from the political background where as a outgoing executive, either president or governor will in their final days make pardons that may be controversial or do things that they may not want to saddle their successor with. Is this something Secretary Panetta, with the gravitas that he enjoys from his government service, thinks that he can do, he can get done now before uh, his successor assuming Senator Hagel is confirmed, takes office? Well, I'm always happy to talk about Europe, and uh, we can get to, get to that soon. Uh, last February, uh, the Secretary, again working with the Chiefs, opened up 15,000 positions to women. So this has been about a year-long process that they've been going through, and he did want to reach a conclusion as soon as possible when the Chiefs were ready and when they came forward with a recommendation. And General Dempsey, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, several days ago, came to Secretary Panetta and said, we're ready. We recommend this. Let's rescind this rule. Secretary Panetta agreed, and here we are. 
Right. That's very interesting. I mean, at least as far as some things get put in the oven, and when they're fully baked, they're fully baked. And, and the point is that they were ready, and they came forward, and, and so this wasn't serendipitous. This was a very thoughtful uh, undertaking. And, and, and moreover, George, it, it, it's something that starts a process. It's not one and done. Help us understand what that process will look like over the next three years. It's a very good question, and thanks for the opportunity to explain it a little bit. What Secretary Panetta did today was sign a memo that uh, essentially changes our current thinking in the U.S. military about the role of women. Before, we used to ask, why should women fill particular roles? Now we have to ask, why shouldn't they? And it's incumbent on the services to examine all of their occupations and jobs to come up with justifications for why women shouldn't serve in certain roles. And if they come up with reasons, then they have to justify that to the Secretary of Defense himself. And he has to approve a future exclusion from women in certain roles. So this changes our thinking. It's a cultural shift. It's a cultural shift inside the U.S. military, that's right. It's one that's been building for some time. Think about the last 10-plus years. Women have served in Iraq and Afghanistan. They've done incredible work. They have been in tanks. They have supported combat units. They have uh, died. We've lost over 152, or about 150 women uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, so they have been on the front lines. Right. The asymmetrical uh, nature of combat is such that being in a combat zone puts almost everyone the potential of being on the front lines, Josh. That's right. I mean, I I have to think back to all the times when I worked with uh, members of the military during my Clinton years, uh, always military aides who were female and male uh, when we were deployed. Uh, to do trips for the president in war zones, uh, a lot of activity uh, with uh, female members of the military. And it just stands to reason that as you sort of project American culture abroad, we we, we uh, honor our culture of equality. And why shouldn't that also be reflected on the people that we, we send abroad, both in diplomatic roles and in military roles? I couldn't agree more. And uh, Secretary Panetta, as Secretary of Defense and as CIA Director, has visited Iraq and Afghanistan multiple times. He's seen women on the front lines, whether they're military or civilian intelligence officers. He's seen what they can do. And he has asked himself for the past several years, why do we have this distinction without a difference in the U.S. military? And here we are. Let's hear a little bit of Secretary Panetta from Thursday making the announcement. Over more than a decade of war, They have demonstrated courage and skill and patriotism. 152 women in uniform have died serving this nation in Iraq and Afghanistan. Female service members have faced the reality of combat, proven their willingness to fight and, yes, to die to defend their fellow Americans. So let's now take a step back, George Little. Let's talk about the Panetta legacy at the Pentagon. It sort of ended on the public stage in many ways last week, the trip through Europe. Let's hear a, uh, a clip from his speech at, the London, at uh, King's College at the University of London. Terrorists should be on notice that they will find no sanctuary, no refuge, not in Algeria, not in North Africa, 
not anywhere. Put this into context, George, final trip of the Secretary of Defense, why you went to Europe, where you went, and why you found yourself in London talking about Algeria. Very good question, Will. Uh, This was the first uh, trip by a Secretary of Defense through European uh, capitals in uh, nearly three years. And these are countries in Europe that have supported our efforts in Afghanistan. They are strong NATO allies, and uh, we wanted to uh, thank them for all they've done for us. And while we were on the road, uh, we have a reputation for making news while on trips, or for whatever reason, uh, by choice or uh, by happenstance. And uh, unfortunately, we had the tragedy in Algeria, and we, of course, had the uh, outbreak of uh, French operations in Mali, which we, of course, commended. So uh, we had a terrific uh, trip through Europe. Uh, we, uh, at King's College, uh, the secretary made a uh, delivered a strong message that we have to stay united uh, as an alliance with NATO, even in the face of uh, budget constraints in the United States and in Europe. And we have to think more innovatively and creatively about how we work together as militaries, because we all f- are facing some of the same security threats. Terrorism, you mentioned that. Cyber threats, we still face uh, the threat uh, from Iran, North Korea, and the list goes on. And it looked that even on that trip, George, you were you were able to, the secretary was able to uh, take a little stock of his own tenure, almost enjoy himself in a little bit. I saw some uh, DOD phot- photography of showing him in the Churchill War Rooms in London. Take us behind the scenes of what it felt like on this final trip with the secretary. This was his valedictory uh, trip as secretary of defense, and it was a bittersweet. I've worked for this uh, terrific leader, uh, someone who served his country for the last 50 years, uh, over the past four years I've been with him. And uh, going through Europe uh, to talk substance with our allies was obviously very important. He's results-oriented and wants to get the job done with our allies. We also took a little bit of time to have some fun. We went to the uh, Churchill War Rooms. He's a big fan of Churchill. Uh, I uh, once told him that uh, in the midst of a news crisis, uh, I quoted Churchill myself, and I said, uh, you know, if you're going through hell, just keep on going, sir. And uh, he's fond of quoting Churchill also. And we also... Uh, did the ceremonial closing of the Tower of London and uh, had a great time having a beer with the beef eaters there. Uh, the British were uh, extremely hospitable hosts and uh, he's got uh, a famous laugh and we had a lot of them on this final trip. And his audience with uh, His Holiness? There you go. Uh, he is a devout Catholic and uh, the uh, Pope uh, was uh, kind enough to uh, uh, greet him and I think uh, the Pope said something to the effect of thanking you for helping to protect the world. And the secretary responded, pray for me. I remember when uh, President Clinton went to Italy in the 90s, uh, then Chief of Staff Panetta came along with us and he introduced the president in Italian and set the uh, the Roman crowd wild with that an American Chief of Staff would speak fluent Italian to about 25,000 uh, cheering uh, guests at our rally. It's sort of uh, it's great to have a chief of staff who can do a good warm-up act. This is one very proud Italian-American, I can uh, tell you that. And he did speak a little bit of Italian uh, while we were in Italy. I married a very proud Italian-American, too, and I often joke uh, with Secretary Panetta that he's the second most powerful Italian in my life. The uh, the job, the role that you play, uh, you, you still hold the acting title, but Assistant Secretary of Defense for Public Affairs. Um, I want to peel back the onion a little bit because for folks who don't live in Washington, don't serve uh, in the government or are not journalists, you know, this, the way that the organization is set up uh, is, is sort of the parlance is not known. But uh, OSD Public Affairs, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, um, 
is is really the uh, where it all comes together. Um, clearly, the the Joint Chiefs have a communications apparatus. So do, uh, in a vertical way, the the service chiefs. But when we talk about administration policy and the voice, uh, it it when it's not the Secretary of Defense, it's you. Um, talk for a second about what it is to. Uh, to have that experience coming from the agency, moving into an incredibly forward-facing, always uh, addressing not just the American public, but the foreign press and leaders around the world from that podium. It's an incredible honor. Uh, It really is. Uh, At CIA, I had the honor of representing an incredible workforce of very talented professionals in the intelligence community. And at the Department of Defense, I have the privilege to be the chief spokesman for America's military and our civilian employees. It is an incredibly uh, tough job in many respects. Uh, You have to stay on top of things. It is 24 by 7. Uh, We are constantly confronting threats uh, around the world, and we have to respond. One of my chief goals as Pentagon Press Secretary, though, is not just to be reactive. It's to tell the incredible stories of our men and women in uniform who do incredible things and make great sacrifices for our country, not just in places like Afghanistan or previously in Iraq, but also in other places around the world. And uh, this is an incredible organization. I oversee about 4,000 personnel. My wife jokes with me. She used to work in the Department of Education, and I think the entire Department of Education numbers about 4,000. I'm probably getting that wrong, but you catch my drift. DOD has large numbers, and uh, it's a privilege to lead this particular organization. A lot of the communicators uh, within the Department of Defense, broadly stated, are uniform military personnel, and they're true professionals. A lot of of, of whom are, are close friends of mine to this day. Um, you get high marks um, in in my calls around to folks who've had the opportunity to work with you is very sober and serious. And one of the things that people like to say, which is pretty self-evident about you, and I want our listening audience here on POTUS, Sirius XM 124, uh, on polyoptics to understand that George Little is a PhD. Um, He's somebody who has deep experience in counterterrorism and that the relationship and the quality of the activity that you have done in your professional career serving Leon Panetta has has. I think, from what I understand, really benefited from how different a communicator you are. You are not uh, a communicator for communication's sake. You you come from uh, this this very deep background in the subject matter. How what have you had to learn in order to come and do this job? When really maybe your formative uh, career prepared you for this, but maybe not all of it, right? Well, I am not a uh, professional uh, communicator, at least by training or background. I uh, call myself the accidental spokesman. I uh, came out of uh, Georgetown, went into the private sector for several years, and then joined the government doing counterterrorism work. And then CIA called me up one day and said, George, we'd like for you to be our spokesman. I said, you're crazy. I've never done any kind of uh, work like this in my life. You'll, fly, you'll fire me after three weeks. He said, no, we think you're good uh, for this uh, job. Uh, You have the PhD in international relations, and you can talk substance to a very seasoned cadre of reporters. And I came on board. Uh, I didn't unpack for three weeks, uh, and I stayed for several years at the agency. And then Secretary Panetta asked me to come to uh, DOD. And and thank you very much for those uh, kind words. I think the art of being an effective spokesman in this town is, uh, first of all, of course, to tell the truth. 
and to be straight with people. That's what Leon Panetta has always told me to do. And I've tried to emulate uh, what he has done throughout his career. It's also about treating reporters and the press as colleagues. It's about exchanging views. There's going to be tension from time to time, and I recognize that. If there's not tension, you're not doing your job right, Exactly. That's right. But you can still have a good discussion. Uh, It's not just about professor uh, press conferences. It's sometimes about professor conferences. Absolutely. And educating. And that's where my education background, I think, comes in. And I'd like to have that repartee with uh, reporters about the issues. They say you're not a yeller. They say that when you come and you get quiet and stern, that's when they know you're, you're not happy. <laughs> it's probably true. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the issues that you have to talk about are not just about uh, guns and drones and, uh, and littoral ships, but they're also about major social issues that mm-hmm. affect an organization with hundreds of thousands and really million, that affect millions of people. I'm talking about the base issues such as uh, suicide and sexual assault. And, you know, these are things that are very much at the top of Secretary Panetta's, and I'm sure your list about how you uh, educate both the people in your community about the help that's available and things that need to be done, and also about the people that cover uh, our defense forces. You're absolutely right. Uh, we have 1.5 million active duty service members, another seven or 800,000 Guard and Reserve troops. That's a, lo- that's a big number, about 2.2 million members of the military. And then you have military families. I think we have nearly 2 million military children who make tremendous sacrifices and supporting them and supporting their needs and communicating with them is an incredible part of the job. We, of course, have troops who are transitioning to private life and helping them find jobs is a big priority for the department right now. And we're working with uh, communities throughout the nation to try to make that happen. We try to do that inside uh, the Defense Department as well. Wounded warriors, uh, we have a big focus on them, of course, and the list goes on. Health of the force issues are a top priority for us. Uh, You've been spending a lot of time helping journalists and others understand the ramifications of the sequestration, of of the sequester, which is still hanging out there. I wonder what you have done as a scholar to try and help prepare yourself and others for the non-discretionary spending that's part of DOD. I'm wondering, there's a lot of research, there's uh, health research, breast cancer, all kinds of other things that are tied up in the money that the Department of Defense for the United States of America administrates. How how are they and those programs potentially going to be impacted by the sequester? It's uh, a terrible prospect, this sequestration thing. If it goes into effect, uh, I got to tell you, it's going to affect our national defense and it's going to affect our force. It's going to affect our uh, morale and we're already seeing that happen. I was with the secretary in a recent troop talk in uh, Italy and uh, this also came up in Turkey. When U.S. service members who are abroad are asking the secretary of defense after he gives a troop talk about continuing resolutions and appropriations bills, and their benefits. Not the stuff you want them to be worried about. No. You want them to be asking about how they're going to improve their capabilities. What kind of gear am I going to get? That's the kind of thing they should be worried about. They shouldn't be worried about Washington terms like sequestration and continuing resolutions. Something's wrong here. This isn't about scholarly research, with all due respect. This is about Basic good governance, and we're not seeing that right now, and the troops know it. I think the American people are ahead of Congress 
on the budget. They get that we have to make some sacrifices. And our troops get it too. And they are uh, unimpressed right now, in my view. And I got to tell you, it's uh, going to hurt morale. It's already weighing on them. We cannot hollow out the force. We cannot affect military families in the way that this could affect uh, our armed forces. It's just nuts. So it's more about the people than the programs, uh, morale, and the toll that the uncertainty is taking is what you're seeing. Is that is, is that right? Absolutely. It's uh, something that weighs on the department every day. We're talking about furloughs for civilian employees up to 22 days a year. That's a big deal. That's a 20% pay cut. Think about that. Think about uh, all the support uh, systems uh, for our service members and how cuts could affect uh, bases and operating costs and shipyards and the defense industrial base. And I mean, we're talking about jobs here. We've done some analysis here. And if we go into sequestration, we could see a full 1% added to the national unemployment rate. That's a big deal. There so that's a, hu- that's a huge burden, George, on uh, Chuck Hagel's shoulders should he get confirmed. What what kind of a secretary do you think he'll make based on your observation of a person who's moved through the various functions of government that Secretary Panetta has? Here comes Chuck Hagel as a Vietnam veteran, former U.S. senator. Uh, what is he going through right now to prepare himself for confirmation hearings with the assistance of people like Jeremy Bash and yourself uh, to get yourself up to speed from the time that you were once a legislator and then his work in Washington in the years since he left the Senate. But now he's got to get ready for a different stage and all of these responsibilities that Panetta, with his vast budget experience, was able to handle in, in a certain way. How can Senator Hagel get ready to take on this job? We're going from a... uh 49er fan or a Cornhusker uh, at the uh, Department of Defense. And uh, he is uh, doing a terrific job uh, getting up to speed on uh, all of the issues that affect uh, DOD and the military and our civilian employees. He's uh, spending a lot of time studying the issues and talking to people. This week he's had some 30 meetings on Capitol Hill with senators. And my strong impression of uh, Chuck Hagel is that uh, he is, like Leon Panetta, results-oriented. He wants to come in and get the job done. He wanna he wants to figure out what the right answer is and he wants to deliver. He is uh someone who's been in business. He's obviously been in politics and in government. And he's also been in academia at my graduate school alma mater, Georgetown. So he has extreme versatility, he's extremely intelligent, he knows these issues, and without a doubt, he gets veterans issues. He's worked in the VA, as you said, he's uh, been uh, a uh, vet, uh, he's been in, in war himself, two Purple Hearts. So I think he gets the issues uh, on substance, and he also understands in his heart what the troops go through because he's been one of them. Let's go a little bit back into your prior role at the CIA. I want to go back to uh, I decline one, comment. <laughs> to, to one. I don't know what you're history. talking about, Josh. Uh, May 2nd, 2011. Let's hear from President Obama in the East Room. I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda, and a terrorist who's responsible for the murder of thousands of innocent men, women, and children. 
So, George, we've had uh, on this program a few people who are in that uh, historic picture in the Situation Room. We've had Pete Souza, who shot that picture itself, but there's nowhere to be found is uh, Secretary Panetta or Jeremy Bash or George Little. Can you give us a sense of what the scene was like uh, as from Langley perspective to the extent that you can share what uh, what information was being provided to the sit room and then and then what happened in the aftermath of President Obama's announcement? The uh, CIA director in this case, Leon Panetta, had uh, overall oversight uh, of this operation. Obviously, our colleagues uh, in the U.S. military at the time carried it out uh, in Pakistan. It was an amazing experience. Uh, we had the director's conference room set up more or less as an operations center, or a mobile situation room, if you will. And uh, we were able to monitor events uh, real time uh, from that uh, conference room slash operations center. And one of the most... Uh, heart racing moments for me was at 1.22 p.m. on the day of the raid. And then Director Panetta spoke to Bill McRaven, who led the uh, SEAL operation. And he said, Bill, I want to uh, convey to you uh, the order of the President of the United States. You are cleared uh, to commence this operation. I want you to go in and I want you to get bin Laden. And if he's not there, Get the hell out. And that moment for me uh, will always be etched in my memory. Uh, It was the start of a long and ultimately successful day uh, for the CIA, our military, but also for our country. Justice was delivered. I had spent uh, several months preparing uh, for this uh, possible operation, and uh, that's why I probably have more gray hair and a lot less of it uh, than I once did. Uh, but I uh, was at the uh, White House that night. We went from CIA to the White House and uh, spent some time in the Situation Room uh, after the raid was over. And uh, it was an incredible experience to be there. I left with uh, Jeremy and the director uh, around 12.30 or so that night. And they couldn't see us, but there was a crowd outside the White House And for whatever reason at that moment, again, not for us, they couldn't see us, they were chanting CIA, CIA, CIA. And I turned to the director and I said, sir, I'm not sure if we should smile or run. Uh, Because when large crowds chant CIA, that's not usually a good thing. It's never a good thing. Right. So polyoptically, George, we we had President Obama's remarks that night. We had Pete Souza's still photograph of the sit room with... Uh, whatever was on Hillary Clinton's uh, papers in front of her sort of blurred out. We don't have imagery from uh, Langley. We don't have pictures of Osama bin Laden uh, after death. We do have this year uh, a film that I saw last week, Zero Dark Thirty, Catherine Bigelow and Mark Bowles' uh, uh, piece uh, or or epic on, on the hunt for bin Laden and ultimately the operators taking him down in Abbottabad. From both the CIA perspective and the DOD perspective, um, what are you saying about the movie these days as millions of people go into theaters and understand in a somewhat better way, albeit dramatized, the effort of uh, intelligence officers for many years and then ultimately the military to get bin Laden? Is this a benefit to both the CIA and DOD or are you hesitant about it? Everyone recognizes this is a movie. I haven't seen it, but I understand it has a happy ending. Uh, the, uh, the the movie, I know, has uh, attracted uh, a great deal of uh, debate in this country, but uh, I think we're treating it really as a, as a movie. This is a Hollywood project, 
And some of it is uh, spot on, uh, some of it isn't. Uh, I think the important thing to realize about this entire operation, this mission, is that uh, it was a team effort. It was a team effort over many years. Hundreds, thousands of people were involved in the hunt for Osama bin Laden. And uh, some people had the opportunity to actually help carry it out uh, in May of 2011 inside the U.S. military and inside the intelligence community, particularly the CIA. So uh, we're treating it for what it is, and that's a a cinematic experience for Americans. Uh, But uh, I hope as history wears on that uh, real stories about the real men and women uh, who carried out this incredible mission are told, and uh, the fact that this was an incredible team effort. The, uh, The art of being a communicator uh, is is a hard thing to teach. It's one just having the opportunity to sit in the studio with you, having read and seen so many of your briefings that you take to so naturally. And I think that what I was trying to get at uh, in my question before and some of the things that, that Josh has been asking you as well, uh, sort of unearth this idea that I want people to come away with from, from listening to you today you're not one to shy away from taking questions, from meeting people, and in, in carrying on a dialogue, which is so important in the job that you do now. Uh, and it's good for the country, too. Um, and, and yet, your personal background is what's made you such a, a, a important person to have by uh, Secretary Panetta. That's why I asked you to come uh, with him. And, and so the question is, and Josh already asked it, what's next? I mean, you have been involved in public service. You have done uh, at great sacrifice, I would gather, to your family uh, uh, a a lot of things you probably didn't intend to do. It seems like it's been rewarding. Um, Do you intend to, you know, continue to serve and and, and play a role in in American posture and in defense and counterterrorism? I'm I'm deeply committed uh, to uh, public service, and uh, it's... uh as I said, an incredible opportunity to have at the Pentagon and previously at the CIA. <clears throat> You're right, this job is uh, 24 by 7 sometimes, and uh, I have a wonderful family that's been uh, extremely supportive, including two terrific young sons with whom I enjoy uh, building Lego sets. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, over time we'll see uh, what happens. Uh, but, uh, you know, I see myself uh, staying in public service, uh, at least uh, in the near term, and uh, we'll see where things go. You can never predict the future, Uh, but family uh, is important, and uh, I recognize that uh, at some point I may have to step back. I think, Josh, that's a that's a thing that, you know, you think about the optics and what we have to do to communicate in this country, but it takes such an enormous toll. You didn't have any kids uh, when you were doing the work in the Clinton administration, Josh. Um, you know, and I had two very young children at the time, uh, but, but raising a family and doing this kind of work is just near impossible for the staff and for principals, right? I couldn't imagine uh, getting into the detail of Ninjago, Lego Police, and Star Wars that I'm now doing with Toby uh, and being able to do George Little's job. I mean, I, I am after that boy as much as I can because he gets these new sets 
And then he, you know, he does about five pages. And I say, no, we've got about 85 pages to go, Toby. Right, George? I thought DOD acronyms were tough, but I opened the Lego instruction set, <laughs> and I'm totally hosed. I told Josh I've got to <laughs> leave this show and go to basketball <laughs> practice for my nine-year-old. And, you know, sometimes that's just not allowed uh, for people who are out there serving the nation the way that you do. Well, there was one week when uh, things were particularly uh, tough at work, and uh, my wife uh, just kept CNN on because uh, she knew she my kids to... could see me uh, on the television, if not at home. You know, George, over the last uh, uh, 30 minutes or so of our conversation, we've had we've talked about a lot of substantive things. We've talked very seriously. Uh, and what is so important, I think, in the way that uh, George can relate to uh, his family and the way Secretary Panetta can also, as tough as things can get, uh, be able to strike that fabulous laugh, uh, make a joke, disarm people with humor and warmth. I just want to hear one more moment from the when President Obama introduced Senator Hagel and and, and uh, also lauded the career of uh, Secretary Panetta and remember that uh, Panetta's singular ability to bring down the House. The time has come for me to return to my wife Sylvia, our three sons, their families, our six grandchildren, and my walnut farm. <laughs> Dealing with a different set of nuts. <laughs> <laughs> George, as we let you go, can you share with us just a couple moments of kind of gallows humor and, and the way that the Panetta would, would keep people light both at CIA and at DOD? You know, he has an incredible sense of humor. Uh, on this recent Euro trip, he was giving me a hard time about my laugh. I said, sir... <laughs> Have you heard yours? Uh, he has a, a wonderful laugh. It's infectious. And look, he's as serious as they get. Uh, he, But he loves to have a good time. He is like an Italian father. He just wants to be around people. He's a terrific listener. He doesn't like PowerPoint briefings and staid settings. He wants to talk about the issues. He just wants to have the conversation, whether it's uh, around his conference room table at DOD or whether it's having a national conversation about the budget and sequestration on television or on radio. And working for someone like that uh, has really been a good example uh, for me. He, he is who he is. And that, you, I saw that in person uh, last week at the White House uh, when Senator Hagel was nominated. And, you know, I think there's something to that. We've lost our sense of humor to some extent in Washington, and we need to pick it back up. Uh, it's about relationships in this town. That's how things get done. And part of relationships is about sense of humor. And uh, I'm going to miss his laugh. George Little, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Public Affairs and Pentagon Press Secretary, thanks so much for spending so much time with Adam and me. And uh, best of luck with getting Senator Hagel confirmed. And I hope when he's uh, fully confirmed and back as Secretary, you'll come back and share how, how his tenure is beginning at DOD. Well, I'm delighted to be here. It's been a heck of a lot of fun. Thank you. So, Adam, you and I try our best to tell it like it is about working in the White House staff, and so does Michael Hastings really try to tell it like it is as a reporter. For Newsweek, for Rolling Stone, and now for BuzzFeed, he burst into consciousness with his piece on Stanley McChrystal as the runaway general, and now, following publication of The Operators, he's focused his reporter's notebook on the presidential campaign and the process of covering it with his new ebook, Panic 2012, the sublime and terrifying story of Obama's first campaign. Welcome, Michael, to Polyoptics. Thanks very much for having me. Appreciate it. 
So we have two of the practitioners, one from Bush, one from Clinton, Adam and me here, the kind of people who put on this road show that you you <laughs> seem to abhor so much. And you make a mention at the beginning of Panic 2012 about how, well, maybe you shouldn't discuss uh, why you were coming back to the, the campaign. 2008 was a difficult experience. And then I went back and read uh, Confessions of a campaign report of a presidential campaign reporter in GQ. So we kind of have the Rudy <laughs> story down. Right, but right, te- right. tell us about how you were brought into Newsweek in 08 and then what lured you back to 12. Sure, sure. And I should fully disclose my wife worked in the Bush White House. Uh, so, so you know, I have much love for, for everybody who, who decides to put themselves uh, in, in, into government and into politics. Uh, though I'm going to give everybody a hard time, too, as well. Um, Generally, so, so yeah, I mean, look, in 2008, uh, I just, I had got back from, uh, uh, Baghdad. I, I spent a long time in Baghdad, uh, and came back to cover the, the, the 2008 campaign. Made it up, uh, I, and then I, I kept getting, you know, I think I, first it was Rudy, cause he was gonna win. And then it was Huckabee I was covering, cause, well, he was, he was hot at the moment. And then they put me on, uh, Hillary Clinton, because, well, she was the sure thing, no way this, this, uh, this you know junior senator from Illinois was going to uh, get it, uh, and then after uh, the senator or then Senator Clinton dropped out of the race, uh, you know Newsweek wanted me to cover John McCain, and 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 I just couldn't do it. I just was not, uh, just did not have the stomach for it, and instead went back to Afghanistan. Uh, went to Afghanistan and uh, started doing stuff there. Said I swore I was never going to do another campaign. This that would have been the second one I'd, I'd reported on, uh, but then you know. 2012 rolled around, and the political junkie in me got the better of me. Uh, and I, I just said, you know, look, to, the opportunity to travel six months uh, around the country with with President Obama, obviously a historic figure, uh, re-election of of the, of the first uh, black president. You know, I couldn't I couldn't pass it up, despite the many humiliations and uh, gropings and and the conflicts I got with, <laughs> along with everybody along the way. Groping being the Secret Service, <laughs> not not anybody else. You know, one of the things that uh, I think people want to know uh, about your uh, your new book, Panic 2012, Michael, is um, y- are you aware of the rules of Fight Club, by the way? Do you know <laughs> the rules? I mean, because clearly someone did not explain them to you properly. <laughs> Do not talk about. Do not talk about Fight Club. No, but I think uh, it's fun when yeah. people break the first rule of Fight Club, and you've gone and done it. Well, well, look, like I mean, one of the the, the interesting things, and, and I've sort of been able to explore this a lot in my writing, are all these unspoken assumptions that one operates under uh, as a journalist, and and there are a lot, and and, and I'm sure I, I follow a lot of them, but occasionally, uh, you know, I'll 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 do something, report something that that I will be told well, that. You know, well, no one ever really said you can't do that, but you know that kind of violates uh, this sort of unspoken, unspoken rules. Um, and, and generally, that has to do with reporting, uh, you know, a little more color, uh, a little more detail uh, than 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 what gets uh, what gets out there. I mean, generally, you know, if I have an agreement uh, with someone uh, or a group of people, uh, you know, I will I will follow it to the letter. Uh, but then you have these situations where they kind of do these blanket rules. Um, and there are a lot of loopholes and a lot of things that uh, I think are worth, uh, you know, worth you know, I think, and Josh can can sort of testify to this, that the assumptions that you had trying to get uh, involved in the 2012 campaign uh-huh. about how you were going to keep some uh, some objectivity and in, in, in what you were desirous of doing when you were on the trail, which namely was 
don't jump in the bubble. Try and sure. you know get out there and 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 see see it as as people who are local journalists might see it, and they come to the event. They're not being catered to constantly. But that proved impossible in the end, didn't it? It just wasn't possible for you to do your job and, and keep that philosophy of how you were going to prosecute the coverage. I think it's very difficult. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of really the kind of some of the most uh, some of the most talented reporters are in in the White House press and, and on the campaign press, and it's very difficult to keep uh, kind of the appropriate distance and, and the appropriate uh, critical kind of lens w- when covering these guys. Uh, I, I mean, look like. I, I, you know, I started off, it's funny, if one went back, I mean, not that anyone would bother this because it's, they'd probably rather kill themselves and read, you know, the, a portion of, of the BuzzFeed articles I did. There is probably a, a change in tone from when I wasn't with the campaign. I was probably a little more critical to when, to when I was traveling with them all the time. Um, though I try, I, I try my best not to, but, but you're kind of fighting against that all the time. And, and, you know, not to, to bring up my, my wife again, uh, after I, after I, uh, had the chance to meet President Obama, um, at this, that this drink session he had in Florida, uh, in, uh, you know, in the middle of the campaign, um, you know, she, 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 she couldn't stand listening to me. She's like, oh my God, you, you fall in love with the man. You know, like, stop, stop. Like, you're making me sick. Uh, this, this pro Obama stuff you're saying to me. And, and I was totally in the tank. Um, now that lasted about, you know, a good month. Uh, and then I wrote something that completely uh, infuriated everybody. <laughs> and then I was out of the tank pretty quickly. Well, that shall be the event that shall not even be mentioned of its very existence. Um, you know, I, I'm shocked, shocked that Jay Carney and Jen Psaki and Stephanie Cutter might arrange for the president to uh, sit down at a table with strict ground rules that such a table never existed, nor reporters were ever there to listen. But I've been sort of around the table enough times sure, with Bill sure. Clinton to, you know, listen to him drone on for 45 minutes and think he's the second coming after you, oh, after sure. you have that ex- exposure. But oh, because. Sure. But because, Michael, you have um, reported so in-depth in war zones and you are so familiar with methods of torture that the United States government might inflict, <laughs> I wanted to play a little clip of Rudy Giuliani from 2008, oh, uh, this, the same kind of stump speech that you heard over and over again, and have you really share with our listeners what it's like to follow one guy everywhere he goes, week in, week out. Let's hear Rudy. You cannot ignore the fact that you know charismatic leaders have a big impact. Charismatic leaders can be charismatic leaders for good or for bad or evil. And he, he happens to be one that's a charismatic evil uh, for, for bad or for evil. But that doesn't mean he doesn't have substantial impact on people. So if we could catch him and his leadership, it would really be a serious blow to the Islamic terrorist movement. So I think we should do everything we can to pursue him. Um, if, if, I, if, I'm the pres- if I were the president right now, I would be doing everything I could to try to catch him and get reports on him every day. What's it like, Michael, to have to endure these stump speeches from uh, Iowa to New Hampshire to California to Florida and hear them doing the same thing uh, for every new audience that they see? Well, my, my colleague at Rolling Stone, Matt Taibbi, I believe had the best response to it. Uh, when he was covering Howard Dean in 2004, he decided to uh, eat a bunch of uh, magic mushrooms and go to the event with a friend, and and he freaked the friend out because as he as Dean uh, spoke, 
right before he would say the words, and Matt would repeat them uh, in this weird uh, echo effect. Look, I, you know, and, and the funny thing about, about Rudy, too, just listen, that reminded me of it. I ended up becoming friends with the number of people on his campaign who I'm actually still friends with, including uh, one of the individuals who literally shut the bus door in my face again down in Orlando, Florida, after they'd promised me an interview and I was waiting outside the bus for an interview, they shut the door on my face and drove off, <laughs> leaving me stranded alone in, in, a, in a parking lot. Um, so, so yeah, that was, that was tough. And then, you know, but there's also this emotional aspect. I, uh, you know, just even thinking back to when Rudy uh, dropped out, you know, these people you have become close to, all of a sudden, you know, you, you see them, they're vulnerable, they're in tears, they're crying. You see how much effort they and how much uh, they put into these campaigns, how much of their uh, selves they, they, they did really inject into these candidacies. Uh, and, and then as a journalist, you know, you're a bit of a tourist, you're a bit of a drive-by you know, oh, you can you, you can get involved and have fun, but at the end of the day, you know, your your fate uh, is not wholly resting on 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 whether the candidate uh, wins or loses. Now, if, if if you're with the presidential who wins, then obviously that's 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 a real benefit. One of the things that uh, I think uh, Michael Hastings, who's joining us as a guest here on uh, Polyoptics Series Six M One Twenty Four, has shown us is that there are uh, some corollaries to the Sun Tzu. Uh, truism keep your enemies close keep your friends close and your enemies closer uh sometimes you have to leave them stranded at uh, a parking lot in the middle of nowhere <laughs> but but, yeah. but in all seriousness michael i really want to uh applaud you in this book for the sort of uh realism with which you describe every scene that that you confronted you were busy trying to find those nuggets and and have those conversations uh with uh axelrod with uh jay carney right yeah and all of the folks who who ultimately would be uh part of this constellation of the obama inner sanctum that uh that you sort of pulled back the curtain on uh what was the hardest thing uh when when you were out there uh trying to get some of those really beautiful uh nuggets like specifically uh that second presidential uh or the first presidential debate in, in the aftermath i mean how do you come upon all of the the insights of what was going on on a phone call before the debate is ever done. I mean, they knew who you were, and they knew what kind of a writer and a journalist. Yeah. They knew that in talking to you, you were going to weave it together in a way that many others would not. Well, well, well you know, the good thing is that there are people, uh, you know, enemies close, you know, as you said, the enemies close line. Uh, I, I remember, you know, getting on the bus towards the end, uh, and uh, we were some trip, and you know Glenn Thrush from Politico. Was, Glenn Thrush from Politico and I were on the same bus. Uh, I think Dick Tapper was there too, and 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 I was told Jen Psaki saw that and I was like, this would be a great trip for <laughs> for these three guys. You know, <laughs> like we would all have to have a good time, but these three jerks weren't along. Um, you know, look, I, I spent, you know, I started at BuzzFeed uh, just to, to do the to do the Obama gig uh, in in April of 2012, and it literally took me six, seven months to, to sort of build the kinds of relationships you need to build with people to get them to, you know, for, for us to sort of trade information and, and play the game in a way that, you know, look, I, if someone is, is, is good to me and it is straight with me, I, I'm going to protect them. I'll go to jail to protect them uh, if that's the case. Or, you know, I'm certainly not going to do anything uh, that's ever that, that, to, to jeopardize uh, anything they're up to. Uh, and you're always balancing that with trying to tell the story. How close can you get to the bone, so to speak, uh, without and still be able to, to, to wake up the next day and, and go out and do it again. Uh, but it took, look, they, look, they won. I mean, the, the success of, of the book in terms of the reporting, and I, I'm quite proud of it. I worked with 
uh, two great reporter researchers, one Ruby Kramer and another uh, woman named CJ Lotz on it. And we did about 45 uh, interviews um, with Obama officials in the, in the, in the 10 days following, uh, following November 6th. So that's when we, all, all, all the great debate stuff, I had a lot, I had some of it going into it, but then it was going back and just, you know, drilling down, spending two, two hours, three hours with people and just getting all those details. Well, Michael Hastings, author of the new ebook Panic 2012, The Sublime and Terrifying Story of Obama's Final Campaign, you have absolutely brought Adam and myself and our listeners behind the scenes of what it is like to cover a campaign uh, in those final stages, Obama's final campaign. You bring us, you give us color of people like David Axelrod and Jim Messina and Stephanie Cutter and Valerie Jarrett and and uh, so many other people in that campaign, and it's absolutely worth uh, a four ninety nine download, uh, and I hope it shows up in print soon. Thanks so much for coming on Polyoptics. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. You hear us each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. POTUS.